the vast majority of people that you pitch your idea to are going to tell you that the idea is horrendous. And that's just, that's just the way that it goes, right? Because if it doesn't exist right now, most people believe that there is a reason why it doesn't exist right now. Even after you've started your company, you're going to get VCs who are telling you no all the time because they don't fundamentally believe in either you or the business or whatever. So I think that the iterating process is really ultimately about throwing something at the wall, seeing if it sticks, and pivoting from there. And how much stamina do you have to actually get through it? Slash, how close did you get to the right thing in the beginning that you can actually outlast all the pivots? Welcome to Founder Friendly, Runway's first student-led technology and venture capital podcast. Here, we provide an inside look into startups and VCs to help you break into the industry and learn more about the latest technologies and trends. Today, our guest is Alec Lee. Alec is currently the co-founder and CEO of MS West, a company that produces a first-of-its-kind molecular whiskey. His extensive history as a founder allowed us to have a really interesting dialogue with him that's perfect for anyone looking to create a startup in college. In our conversation, we get real about the founder experience, the role luck plays in being successful, and how bootstrapping a company compares to being venture-backed. Join us as we talk with Alec about his history in startups and learn more about how Endless West is looking to disrupt the alcohol industry. Hey everyone, welcome to our third episode on our food and beverage sprint. Our guest today is Alec Lee. He's the CEO at Endless West, a venture-backed food technology startup working on the development of alcoholic beverages with an undergraduate education focused on biotechnology and an MBA from Harvard. Alec's expertise lies both in the food technology products he's developed for Endless West, as well as the founder experience. He previously founded and bootstrapped an online education company called MPrep before exiting through acquisition in 2019. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. And thank you, Alec, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So could you give us a bit of background on yourself, how you got into the startup space, what made you interested in the food and beverage space? Sure. You know, without recapping what you already said, I got into startups when I was in my, I guess it was technically my sophomore year of college. And this is sort of the end of the summer. I was originally thinking that I was going to be a pre-med student. And a longtime friend of mine, who turned out to be a co-founder, were talking about preparing for the MCAT. And, you know, just sort of through a serendipitous series of conversations, we realized that a lot of the tools we were looking for didn't exist. And so we decided to just go out and, and build them. You have to understand also, this is 2008. So this was before the days of Coursera, before the days of a lot of online courses. So there really was very, very little. And so the entire online ecosystem was very, very different. And so there were a lot more white spaces. So we just kind of grabbed one of those and ran with it. I realized from that experience, doing that in college, that it was really, really interesting. I enjoyed that a lot more than I enjoyed studying to become a doctor, for sure. And so I just decided to continue running with that. I would say that bootstrapping a business in college is probably the very easiest and safest time to do it. I mean, frankly, like you don't have kids to worry about. You barely even have to pay rent. That's on student loans or, or you can work another job, right? It's not the ex same kind of existential risk you have after you've graduated and you're supposed to be a proper functioning adult. So we had a couple years of building the business before we really needed to figure out 
how to generate revenue to sustain ourselves. And at that point, you know, it all kind of came together. But food and bev was also just another accident. It was just a means of finding something else that was really interesting. There was actually another start in between that. So this is technically number three for me. I left the company that we'd started before this, which was in biotech. And so, yeah, my entrepreneurial journey has just been a whole bunch of, of being in the right place at the right time with the right people and just sort of latching onto a really interesting idea. And frankly, that's been my experience of the vast majority of founders that I know um, is right place at right time with right people. And you just kind of run with it and see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. That's a great answer. And thanks for all the background. I wanted to quickly ask, because I know you had said founding a startup during college is kind of like a, a great time for you because you didn't have to worry too much about some of the like living expenses and things like that if you're on student loans too. I'd love if you could tell us about maybe some of the challenges that you actually faced with MPREP during the time, because we know that you bootstrapped the company, you didn't raise VC funding. So maybe compare it to your experience now at Endless West. Yeah, I mean, look, they're night and day, even though on paper they may look similar. Bootstrapping the business was ultimately about, we want to make an interesting product. Again, not, not worrying about revenue in the early days. We want to make an interesting product we would use and that hopefully will be useful for other people and get that in front of as many eyeballs as possible. You have to consider also that at the time, you know, the late 2000s, even into the early teens, what everyone was talking about as far as what made a viable startup was eyeballs, eyeballs alone. And you would hear that common refrain. It's less common now because I think a lot of monetization has changed. But there that a lot of Instagram's acquisition wasn't about they had a fundamentally better product, right? You know, they, they got bought when they had, what, 30 million users for a billion dollars. And it was primarily a, look how quickly they grew to $30 million. We're going to buy someone in the space. I mean, obviously there's a lot more nuance to that, but a lot of it functionally was how many people are actively using this app. And that's what it was for us too, is how many people could we get as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible, because we don't have money to throw behind ads. So it's all really organic growth. And we were doing all kinds of sort of like stealth marketing stuff, everything from, you know, leaving like cards in, in, in MCAT prep books in school libraries so the next person who borrowed the book or opened it would like see our link right things like that but the vast majority of the growth was pretty much all referral pretty much all organic and then just basic search we rose to the top of the search rankings because we were the only ones so you know that was an exercise that went from let's just see how quickly we can get people interested in this and not worry about monetization to we're about to graduate we have to figure out what we're doing with this and where it's going to go and figure out how to monetize it. And so that was a whole separate strategic exercise of, you know, do I have a coursework? Is it a freemium model? Freemium as a model, or at least in that context, barely even started to exist at that time. So all of this was very, very new. And I think part of the challenges in the early days, if you can still call those the early days, was that you didn't have good models out there for successful monetization. You didn't have really good libraries of pre-existing templates or code. We coded the entire thing line by line completely from scratch. And, and we didn't have any CS backgrounds previously. We did all the design in-house. We literally did every single thing. And 
to contrast that with what you do when you're a venture-backed startup, obviously the game is completely different. It is grow as quickly as you can. You have all this money to do it. So you better throw resources behind it. And, you know, the pressures are also just very different, right? You have much lower revenue, but also the constant existential crisis of, you know, is my business going to crumble next month? Is someone, some other competitor going to come eat my lunch? Any number of other worries that you have when you're a venture-backed startup, but because you have a large pool of capital that you're sitting on, you can at least project your runway. When you're a bootstrap company, your runway is just what you earned that month, and, and that's it. Then next month, you might have to look for another job if a major competitor launches a competing product. So on the flip side, you don't have a board you have to worry about. You don't have external investors. You just have a whole different set of problems, but they are still very much problems in one world or the other. It's just, you know, it's a pick your poison kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's very interesting to kind of see those differences. And I'm sure since a lot of our viewers may be also interested in, say, like pursuing a startup either at some point in their life or, you know, in the near future, how was that ideation phase and figuring out whether or not your idea was the right one to pursue? How did that differ between Endless West versus MPREP? Was that dynamic a little bit different for you since one is coming from the perspective of being venture-backed versus bootstrapping? That's a really interesting question. I would say that they're not different. And the reason I say that is because even though startups weren't really on my radar when I first started working on Empress, I long had ideas about businesses that I thought would be interesting. You know, everything from ride-sharing, which turned out not to be Uber, but get around years later, right? That everyone I pitched told me was a horrendous idea because why would anyone ever rent out their own car to, to some stranger, right? I can probably go down a list of like those early 2000s or mid 2000s business ideas or startup ideas that everyone just thought were, were, were horrible. And, and that, that's, I think, a very common experience for a lot of a lot of founders or would-be founders is I have an idea, I do nothing with it. So of course I've earned nothing for it. And then someone else is going to end up with the same idea. I mean, fundamentally, we're all human. We're all living in the same, well, the same world with the same experiences. If you have an idea, someone else has either already had that idea or is going to have that idea. And the other part of, of that is the vast majority of people that you pitch your idea to are going to tell you that the idea is horrendous. And that just, that just, the way that it goes, right? Because if it doesn't exist right now, most people believe that there is a reason why it doesn't exist right now. You can't monetize it. It's fundamentally bad. No one's going to want it, whatever the case may be. Even after you've started your company, you're going to get VCs who are telling you no all the time because they don't fundamentally believe in either you or the business or whatever. Whether or not you're starting something as a bootstrap business, which you, know, you don't know if it's going to be successful. You don't know if it's a good idea. You don't know if you can do it. You don't know what all the hidden challenges are. The challenges are all fundamentally the same. It may be a different group of people who are telling you that you're dumb and that you're doing something stupid and you're wasting your time, but it's still going to be people doing the same thing. When you're, in, when you're pitching VCs, the credibility is just a lot higher, but it doesn't make them any more right, right? They have, they have much more experience than perhaps most people's family and friends and just like random strangers who often give pretty bad advice, quite frankly. The VCs at least have the guise 
of giving really good advice. But that doesn't actually make them fundamentally smarter or better about the vast majority of things that actually don't exist. So I think that the iterating process is really ultimately about throwing something at the wall, seeing if it sticks, and pivoting from there. And how much stamina do you have to actually get through it? Slash, how close did you get to the right thing in the beginning that you can actually outlast all the pivots? Some of the VCs that I respect the most have said to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, that a mediocre idea with flawless execution is better 10 times out of 10 than a stellar idea with mediocre execution. I think that really speaks to the idea that like you as a founder, your stamina, your ability to bring things across the finish line, drag it across the finish line, matters so much more than whether your idea is quote unquote right or not. And so I'd really emphasize on like making sure that you're making the right decisions, asking the right people for advice, iterating quickly and not getting emotionally attached to any version of the thing that you've built and really just looking for the path of least resistance to success rather than agonizing over like how many MVP types should I do? How much money should I raise? Like all that type of stuff is, is just kind of like noise. Yeah, for sure. I love what you said about how ideas might come across. Like it's so easy to write off an idea that doesn't exist yet with your example of like ride sharing, but also I'm sure for, for MPREP, you were, you were early in the game for like that online education as you were speaking about. Kind of want to jump ship on that and talk about the, the innovative idea that you, you've been working on at Endless West, the note by note production of like, like alcoholic beverages. I'd love for you to give a little bit of context to our listeners on one of your products, Glyph, and just maybe talk about why it's important. Yeah, so Glyph is a molecular spirit that is modeled after a whiskey. For a while, we called it a molecular whiskey, but that's not a, a legally defined term. So we can't market it that way. But fundamentally, it is, it is a product walks like, like walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, but is not made traditional distillation and aging. Instead, we scan all the molecular components, you know, figure out the recipe, if you will, the molecular recipe of whiskey, of other spirits out there, and then source those from other natural plants, yeasts, and bring them back together again and, and recombine them. So in some sense, it looks like a plant-based burger, for example. But the primary difference is that we're not making a functional analog, which is what a lot of plant-based burgers are, right? You know, it's, it's a burger explicitly. It's not a steak. It doesn't do everything that a burger does. It doesn't behave the same way because it's not the actual same components, the same molecular ingredients. Whereas with our products, it is really truly fundamentally the same. And so in that sense, it looks maybe a little bit more like a lab-grown meat where it fundamentally is meat cells and all the same things. But we have all the cost advantage and all the process advantage of a plant-based, which is a lot cheaper, a lot more sustainable. We can make it overnight without barrels, without aging. And so to sort of answer the question about the problem that it solves, most of it is actually for industry, right? And most of it is you have to lay down pretty expensive barrels for an unknown period of time. You have to take a lot of risk on future market demand. And then if you have guessed wrong, you either have to take a loss or you are way undersupplied, which is what's happening right now in the industry. And so we provide 
a much easier way for the industry to sort of like absorb a lot of those demand shocks because we don't have to hold inventory. We can, like I said, make it overnight and we can, at the end of the day, deliver a product that fundamentally is of a good enough quality as if it were aged that you don't have to, as a consumer, take a big concession on either price or quality, never mind all the sustainability advantages as well. Yeah, the product sounds really cool. And I also was really intrigued by kind of, I saw on your website that there was an analogy between like an ice pond and it's fundamentally the same as getting like ice from an ice pond versus like an ice machine. And I think you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. I know one of Endless West's primary value propositions is that there's a less of an environmental impact. Could you speak to that a little bit further and and give us a more detailed idea of like how traditional distillery versus note-by-note production kind of compares in terms of sustainability? Yeah, so the the sustainability story is actually really different for each product that we make. So with distilleries, the primary difference is that when you put product to a barrel, a lot of the liquid gets absorbed into the barrel and evaporates over time. And so all this, all the raw material that you get, there's some loss due to aging. And that can be, you know, it could be 10, 20%. It could be upwards of 50 or more percent if it's aged a really long time. So that's the primary difference from traditional aged spirits versus ours, where you effectively get 100% yield on the raw materials that went into it. You know, nothing is ever truly 100% you don't lose it during aging. We actually started the company as Ava Winery to our early conversation about pivots, right? We were originally doing this within wines. And that's a completely different story. Sure, you lose some during aging if it's a barrel-aged, it's a barrel-aged wine, but there's a whole separate angle, which is grapes are a really resource-intensive crop. And so they require a lot of water, they require a lot of maintenance. And so where we get the bulk of the actual calories, if you will, if you just look at a calorie by calorie basis, is corn. All the other components that are not corn are such low quantities. Their contribution is functionally zero to the overall sustainability of the product. So if most of the calories are from corn, corn's a much, much more efficient plant than a grape. And so, you know, I think a lot of the industry, food tech in general, and a lot of consumers have been primed incorrectly to believe, well, the only sustainability advantage is to be had in food is if you move from animals to plants. But inside of plants, there's a huge diversity in terms of how resource intensive, how pesticide intensive some of these crops are. I mean, grapes are dramatically over-indexed on pesticide application because they're such high value crops and because they're they're so sensitive compared to a lot of other commodity crops like soy or corn. So there, there's a lot of different metrics that you could use here, but, but that's really the gist of it is, is using as efficient and sustainable raw material feedstocks to replace inefficient or slower, slower ingredients. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a great breakdown of it. I like that you broke it down by the products too. I'm kind of just now interested in how you came up with an idea for this. Were you trying to tackle the problem of like sustainability within like the wines and spirits industry or were you kind of looking in terms of a, a different perspective no it, it was it was actually it was very much serendipity just like mprep it was a chance conversation specifically with endless west my now co-founder although he and i were working on the previous startup as well together he went to napa 
saw a famous, very expensive, very exclusive bottle of wine on the wall, didn't get to try it because it was like behind this plexiglass case. So their only one was for display only, right? And he's coming back thinking, you know, there's all these companies that are working on like making meat, the individual components from plants. Why can't we do that with alcoholic beverages? We have a lab, we have chemistry backgrounds. Why can't we just figure out the molecules, buy them and recombine them to, to make a wine? It was literally that simple. And, and I would say a lot of the really interesting and, and frankly, a lot of the successful startups that I've seen have functionally similar founding stories. I mean, I have a good friend from high school who's the founder of a pretty successful tech startup now. And literally their founding story is they were on a ski trip and they were like, you know what's really hot right now? APIs. What could we do an API in? Let's figure something out that no one else is doing. And they just found a random space and we're like, all right, yeah, let's build an API for that. And it, it's done extremely well for the last several years. And, you know, like there's something to be said for a lot of these contrived exercises, if you will, these, these sprints of like, let's come up with a business idea. But there's really no substitute for like true serendipity. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially like considering it really seems like within the startup space, sometimes you really just have to like throw things at a wall, see if it sticks. If not, then just pivot. I'm curious though, like how important was your background in biotechnology and helping you develop your product? Because it seems like maybe if you didn't have that background, this idea might not have come to fruition in the first place. Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question. This specific idea, I think, would have been really difficult to execute without someone having technical knowledge. I mean, both my co-founder and I have biotech backgrounds. And I struggled to say that it had to be both of us. You know, at least one of us had to have the technical, technical know-how. But like hire number two or three for us was already someone who was substantially more technically versed than we are. It was a PhD in analytical chemistry. We didn't even know how to operate the, the equipment that she was going to buy. And so I think that it is important for founders of technical companies to have some basal level of technical knowledge. But I think more of that comes from like just the first principles, understanding and approach to be able to ask the right questions and to be able to get the right experts in the room to answer the really difficult things. You don't have to be a true expert. And in fact, if you look at any of the well-known food tech companies today, you know, sure, Pat Brown from Impossible Foods was a, a Stanford professor, but he didn't have any specific experience in this space. Josh Tetrick from Just is not technical. I don't know Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat, but if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he was technical either. What they do is they find good technical co-founders, right? If they don't have it. And, you know, I've just listed those examples because they're large and they're relatively well known. But this trend is very common across a lot of technical companies. So I very much appreciate the fact that I have technical knowledge. This would this job would be substantially more difficult without it, but certainly it's possible. For sure. Yeah. And flipping the script a little bit now towards the kind of business side, I know that Endless West is B2B in terms of like, you have like turnkey brands, you partner with spirit developers and basically offer them a better way to produce their products. You also have your own line of products as well. And I'm kind of wondering, 
how you balance or what your vision is for the delivery of what you create? Well, so if we had a much longer, much more time to have a much longer conversation about all the pivots over the years, I'd sort of walk you through a lot of that. The reality is the vast majority of our business and effectively all of the business that we project over the next several years is, is B2B. The internal stuff ended up being much more of a, let's put brand out there so we can prove the worth of the product and the quality of the product. But beyond the halo that it can generate, the proof concept for trade, ultimately for distributors, for other retailers, it's not a commercially viable thing for us. I mean, my team is so much better at building product and selling B2B than they are in brand building, which is a completely different exercise for which you don't have to have a good product at all. I mean, that's the unfortunate reality of brand building. And we've never really been set up for let's just build a consumer brand. But I'd say that there's a separate consideration why I think that's right, the right call for us is, you know, you have to think really carefully about what it is that you're trying to build. Are you trying to build a technology or trying to build a brand? Uh, it's really hard to do both. There are very few examples of companies that have been successful doing that. Tesla, obviously, is a really, really good example of that. But how many Teslas are there? There are very, very, very few. And so for the most part, you're either good at building technology and should just focus on that. And you want to de-risk the success of your technology by putting into as many brands as you possibly can. Or you're really good at building brand. And then you want to de-risk your brand by spreading across multiple suppliers, if possible, right? Not getting stuck in bed with a single manufacturer, which is so common for a lot of brands themselves. Doing both is extremely hard, extremely expensive. And, and then you end up having to explain to you know, your board, your investors, why building brand is extremely expensive, why you're spending all this money to build a technology that can live in any number of brands where you don't have to make the brand investment. And then also spending all this money on brand. It doesn't make a lot of sense for the vast majority of companies. So hopefully that gives some other color about stuff that you don't exactly ask. But th this is how we're thinking about the business now and, and sort of how we found here over many years of pivots. It's really interesting to see that it seems like a lot of these insights were made through your company pivoting. I'm kind of curious to see like how you as a co-founder have kind of developed your ability to see like when the company should be pivoting its mission or goal and what you've learned about like how to go about executing that. Yeah, I mean, look, almost no one gets any pivot right. They're either too late or too early or wrong entirely, but that doesn't mean that the business can't be successful. And so what I think that really points to is there, there's a, I think a really widely held misconception that what you're trying to do as a founder is find the one correct answer, the one objectively right thing to do inside a sea of wrong answers. And that's not the case at all. The, the reality is actually, they're all the wrong answer. Some are just more wrong than others. Some will cost you something and the other cause gonna cost you something else. And you just have to pick your poison. What's gonna be the least friction the least painful solution to some problem. And so, you know, we certainly 
did not get our pivots right. There are some that we did far too late. There's some that we got wrong when we tried to do it. And so we had to sort of double back fix it later. But others were, you know, completely inconsequential. You know, I don't know that it would have made any difference to the business fundamentally if we had started as a spirits company rather than a wine company. It may have done nothing at all. It may have made it more difficult to, to raise money. Who knows? As a founder, you're always constantly having to deal with those counterfactuals as well. Like what would have happened if I had done something different? And the answer is you'll never know and it doesn't matter. So just move on with your life. But yeah, I wish I could tell you, oh, well, like here's the signal, but it doesn't exist. You got to use your best judgment and then you're going to be measured as a founder by the quality of your judgment. I mean, no one else can do that for you. Yeah, I know that that totally makes sense. And I think kind of on that same line of being judged as a founder, I want to pivot a little bit to your experience fundraising because you had to get some VC investors on board. I'd love to hear a little bit of a brief overview on like the funding history of Endless West and then maybe a couple of challenges that you had or what you were searching for in them. Were you looking for good mentors, introductions to potential B2B partners, or just like funds at the lowest valuation or the highest valuation, my bad. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, depending on who it is, sometimes you'll take the lowest valuation too. I think there's something to be said for that. Maybe not the lowest, but you won't necessarily take the highest valuation. Look, let me really quickly tell you that even though I bootstrapped the it wasn't for a lack of searching. Now, there are two things to keep in mind there. One, I had no network when I started searching for MPREP investors. And I was based in Ann Arbor in Michigan at the time, which is not exactly a bastion of the venture capital ecosystem. But we tried. And the investors that we talked to were like, listen, this isn't a VCable business. This sounds like a really great bootstrap business and you should just run with that. And they were totally right. So not everything should raise money, to be really, really clear. Endless West could never have been built without raising a lot of money. The equipment is expensive, expertise is expensive, and it took a lot of time. Even if we had known exactly where we want to go, it would have taken a lot of time to get there. So certainly no bank is going to loan you any money for that. And unless you're independently wealthy or you know your parents are going to write you a $50 million check to just do whatever you want to do, it's going to be VC, right? And that experience was also really interesting because it started the same way. When I moved to San Francisco to really start working on this, I still had no network. I didn't know whom to call. It was just random friends with random connections to random investors. And, and of course, the very first investors who take your meeting are almost never the ones that you actually want to talk to. But they'll give you some good feedback, almost all of which is negative, but they'll still give you something, right? And so the first couple months, we had no idea whether or not this was going to work. And in fact, I've told this story many times to internal circles, but I almost left the company a handful of times in those early days, mostly for personal reasons. I was doing long distance with my wife at the time. And I was like, I just need to go back home. Like, why am I here? We can't raise money. Like, we don't even know if this product's going to be any good. Like, you know, I'm, I'm tired. But in the same way that the idea came out of serendipity, the first kind of like fundraising hits also came out of serendipity. Specifically, we had a friend who had previously done well at dot-com boom in the early 2000s. So he was followed by a bunch of press on Twitter, was working on a kind of crazy startup. So a bunch of people were kind of like looking at it to see like what this weird guy doing now. And he posted about what we were doing after he had tasted one of our prototypes just randomly. And someone from New Scientist magazine saw it and was like, 
that seems really cool. No one's written about this. I want to do the inclusive story on it. He did. And then our first investor read that article, reached out to me on LinkedIn, and literally within 36 hours of reaching out and getting on a call, they were like, we want to lead you around. We don't want anyone else to participate. And we're just going to take the whole thing. And they didn't end up taking the whole thing. We had a couple other investors who were interested. But, but that, I think, just goes to show like, how quickly you can go from, I have no idea this is going to work, to, all right, I have a couple million dollars in the bank and I can run with it. Those are the hardest days from fundraising. After that, you build your network, you get into a rhythm, you know how to pitch your business, you know your business better as well. And then it's just about finding the right investors at the right time. You'll talk to people who are the wrong stage. They do too early, too late, wrong field, whatever it is. And so you're just kind of navigating that ecosystem. But fundamentally, if you have a, an interesting, VCable business, you'll eventually find the right people if you can pitch it well. Yeah, it's, it seems really cool just to see how your story unraveled and just to kind of understand how much, you know, almost luck and kind of just chance there is in starting up a company of your own. Kind of looking forward, where do you see the spirits industry in five to 10 years? Like what trends do you see that might likely contribute to the future identity of your industry and what you're trying to pioneer with your company? Yeah. Well, let me just speak to the luck thing for a second. We have lots of thoughts about that. I mean, look, I'm by no means a believer of a true meritocracy. Certainly all of us have had the vast majority of successful people have had immeasurable luck, even going so far as like, you know, you guys having the luxury of being at an institution like NYU is something that the vast majority of people don't get to have. So I don't discount any of that for a second, but short of winning the lottery, which is true, unadulterated luck, it is, I think, really interesting that a lot of successful founders find themselves in really lucky positions. And there's a lot of work that goes into creating that luck, right? Again, finding yourself in the right place at the right time with the right people. Yeah, there is an element of luck to it, but you have to walk your ass into that room over and over and over again, right? You have to have the stamina to be told no hundreds of times, to be told that your idea sucks hundreds of times, to be rejected by customers, right? To have failed product. You have to get through that. That's not luck. This isn't a walk in the park. This job sucks. Like the people who do this because they think like, oh my God, how amazing is it going to be when like everyone listens to me and I'm the CEO? Like, no, no. Like this job can only be done by people who have the, unfortunately, the stamina and, and the ability to wade through the shit to get to the finish line and then just happen to be lucky on top of it all. But anyway. As for the industry, look, I think like there's a lot of changes to food these days in general, right? Over the last eight years since the Beyond Meats and the Impossible Foods of the world have had their rise, people have really changed their tune on how food should be made, you know, what constitutes like good food, healthier food, more sustainable food, etc. And certainly not without its backlash not without its growth challenges. No new technology is ever going to be like that. But our industry specifically is 
a different beast. You know, I, I mentioned sustainability last for a reason. Sustainability is not the reason that most people drink or don't drink alcoholic beverages. It's usually the last thing people are thinking about when they're drinking. And, and it's a very, very traditional industry for good reason. Tradition has been a very successful marketing tool for our industry. I think that the tides are changing here as well, that consumers are, especially younger consumers, are less enamored by tradition than our parents or the Gen X who preceded us. We're seeing a, really a decimation of the wine industry, the wine industry's prospects with millennials and with younger consumers. A lot of wine purveyors sort of have their head in the sand about that because times are good still with older buyers, but this is going to be a problem. And so with a lot of those changing preferences, changes in buying behavior, I think companies that are able to bring a technology that can pivot really easily in the market are, are going to be very successful. The big behemoths, like they're good at acquisition. Right? Very few big companies in our space are good at innovation. So I don't necessarily think that like those guys have a major problem. They're just going to buy the next hot trend and just keep doing it. But on the ground, the ones who are successful are, again, just going to be the ones who happen to catch the right trend at the right time or able to respond to changing trends really rapidly. And so that, that's, I think, a unique advantage of our technology. But yeah, there's, I would say that the alcohol beverage industry has changed a lot in the last 10 years. You can see it even with like, the malt beverages turned hard seltzers, right? You know, canned cocktails, like those didn't exist 20, 30 years ago, anything to the extent that they, that they do now. And we're going to see some more change too. That's my prediction. I'm definitely wrong. I just don't know how I'm wrong. The magnitude by which I'm wrong, but everyone who's making any prediction at all is wrong in some way. And that's part of the pivoting process, right? But you know, you're wrong. It's just how wrong are you and how quickly can you recover? Yeah, yeah. I love that you tie it back into even like the pivot process of your startup at the end there. You've given some great insight in that answer on like both what you need as a founder to succeed as well as like some of the expert kind of industry expertise for the the wine and spirits industry. That's going to wrap it up for the Founder Friendly Podcast for this third episode of the Food and Beverage Sprint. Thank you to all of our listeners. And of course, thank you so much, Alec, for taking the time to speak with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Good to chat with you guys. Mm -hmm.